The first reading today <coughs> is at the top of the sheet is from 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 9. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through ref though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to chapter 14, verse 12. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And they said, How did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He's been raised from the dead and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd, since they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head there on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning, friends. Uh, if you have no idea who I am, fair enough. Um, I'm Simon. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, my main responsibilities at this time are... Um, what are they? Saturday night, I look after Saturday nights. I 
now help to look after our 8 o'clock congregation and I um, lead pastor over at Lavender Bay, our church plant, um, which thanks if you pray for us over there, things are going great. We're um, seeing new people come to faith in Jesus. Um, we're growing. I think we've now tripled in size, so we're now about 90 people. At least if everyone came on the Sunday, we'd be 90 people. Um, but it's really exciting to see God at work over there. Um, I'm really excited to preach uh, to you. I think it's been a year since I've seen you guys, at least in this position. Um, it's last October, I think I preached uh, through 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. I think that passage kind of reconverted me, if you can say that. Um, the amazing hope we have in Jesus. Uh, we get to look at Jesus again this morning. So um, I hope you've got that page open as we look at Matthew 13. In particular, we're going to look just at Matthew 13, 53 through to 58. Um, hang on to your hats. We're going to come back to Herodias um, and Herod and the beheading of John uh, next week. Um, but one of, one of the things that I think just that the truth, the big theological truth that just sort of springs out of, of Matthew chapter 13 today is what's on the screen behind you, me. Our worship of Christ, this is what springs out of this passage, our worship of Christ is a reflection of our belief in Christ. What you believe about Jesus, who you believe Jesus was and is, determines how you will worship him. Such that if you just see him as another nice guy who did a whole bunch of nice things, then you'll just treat him the same way as you do any other nice guy who does nice things for you. But the Jesus that we meet in the scriptures is not only human, He is Lord of all creation. If you believe that Jesus is the majestic king of all creation, who through him, for him, and by him, all things were created, then you will worship him differently to just any other guy. And so I want to pray this morning as we come before Matthew 13, this great narrative of Jesus when he interacts with his people from his hometown. I hope you will see that what you believe about Jesus determines how you worship him. And what Jesus does today is say, I gave up everything for you. I'm worthy of you giving up everything for me. Exactly like the eight parables we've just looked at. He gave up everything for us. He's worthy of us giving him everything. And so let me pray as we come before this text this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray with thanks for the living hope that you've rebirthed us into a living hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we look upon Christ again this morning, we will just worship him with our whole lives. We thank you for this heaven that we have been given that is imperishable, unspoiled, never fading, never perishing. May we live for that. May the reality of our home, heaven with you forever, determine how we live today and so may we live here today loving Jesus more seeing him for who he is the majestic creator of all things God himself but our brother fully human and so we pray that Jesus be honored today amen amen JQ 761 departing Adelaide domestic airport Saturday, October the 20th, a young man, baby in arms, walking to gate 26. Picture him, picture two unsuspecting people, Nikki and Emmanuel, walking, JQ 761, 
Adelaide Domestic Airport, Saturday, October 20. Heading on the same flight, Adelaide, Sydney. Now picture row five. A, seat A, B, C. Young man, baby in arms, 5A. Nikki, Emmanuel, 5B, 5C. Sit down, plane's a bit late. A few, you know, jovial comments made between the three of them. Plane finally takes off. They're in the plane, plane's going along. Jetstar, love you, Jetstar. Jetstar kind of serves some food and then the you know, conversation keeps going. Sure enough, the conversation then moves to asking the young man with his beautiful now sleeping babe in arms, what do you do? The young man says, I'm a minister of the gospel in Kirribilli. Church by the bridge, Kirribilli, actually. Nikki, Emmanuel, row seat 5B, 5C, move as far to the edge of the plane as they possibly can. Oh, my goodness, what have we got ourselves into? The young man with baby in arms was me. Yesterday morning, JQ761, flying Adelaide to Sydney, and I sat next to Nikki and Emmanuel, and they were freaking out. It's a dangerous place to sit next to me on a plane. <laughs> As we got talking, uh, we got talking about, you know, um, what I do. What does it mean to be a minister of the gospel in Kirribilli? I got to talk about how I do various things around church, but ultimately I said to them, I, I tell people about Jesus. That's what I do. And preaching on this passage, you know, when we get to Matthew's gospel, in particular this section of the gospel, the big idea, the big question of the week comes out in Matthew 16. We'll get there eventually as a church, but the big question comes out in Matthew 16, where Jesus turns to his disciples after everything he said to them. He turns to his disciples and, say, and says to them, but who do you say I am? After all that Jesus has been doing and saying, doing wonderful miracles, saying incredible things, who do you say I am? It's a tremendously personal question. It's not academic. Because what you believe about Jesus, what you think about Jesus, who you think he is, radically shapes how you worship him, radically shapes your direction and your priorities. So there I was. Seat 5A, I thought, let's just go for it, Simon. Wear your heart in your sleeve. Wear your faith out in the open. So I turned to Nikki and I turned to um, Emmanuel and I sort of said, I'm just going to ask them the question Jesus asked us. Who do you say Jesus is, Nikki? Who do you say Jesus is, Emmanuel? They were now like climbing up the wall of the plane. <laughs> But they said to me, like the classic responses, isn't it, that most, I'm sure you've had when someone has sort of, you've asked them a similar question. Oh, Simon, I think he was a great human teacher. Great human teacher, like Gautama Buddha, like Muhammad. You know, the other, another response they had, oh, he was a great human leader, like Che Guevara or Alexander the Great. Or he was, you know, they said to me, he was a beautiful human being, wasn't he? He had a lovely manner. He was a lovely man like Mother Teresa, St. Francis, or once I asked that question of someone, they said, Bob Geldof. <laughs> I mean, what would you say, I wonder? If I was to come now down from here and walk around with a camera like Vox, Vox Pop style and ask each one of you individually, personally, who do you say Jesus is? What would you say? 
What you believe about Jesus radically shapes how you worship Jesus. And tonight, or this morning, as we come before Matthew 13, when Jesus goes to the very people he lived with and grew up with, his neighbourhood people, Nazareth in Galilee, they ask questions about who Jesus is and ultimately one thing they cannot say about Jesus is he's just a nice guy or he's just a human, a good human leader or he's just a great teacher. They cannot get away with the patronising banality of just calling Jesus a nice guy. He doesn't let them get away. I want to show you this. And I hope this morning we'll be shaken out of our apathy towards Jesus. We'll see him as who he truly is, God in flesh, human, wholly human, yet God himself with all the wisdom, authority and power that only God has, working through Christ Jesus. And so two really simple points this morning. First, the undeniable human origin of Jesus. And secondly, the undeniable divine power of Jesus. Two simple points that just leap out of this passage. Have a look with me at that sheet you've got, Matthew 13, um, verses 54. Jesus went to his hometown. He began to teach them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, you know, they've seen Jesus. They're trying to work out who is he? Who is this guy? How did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Can you sort of see them kind of just pointing them out one by one? Isn't it James, Simon, Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? Where does he get all these things? The issue is Jesus' identity and straight up the undeniable fact about this one man standing in Nazareth is that he is the carpenter's son, wholly human. The carpenter in his day was a skilled craftsman running a small village industry, the town's key builder, middle class businessman most likely. So these people that Jesus now goes back to in Nazareth of Galilee see him as that, the, the, the carpenter's son, a family member of this unit of Mary and Joseph and the boys and girls. Now these people had watched Jesus growing up, seen his nappies being changed, seen Mary proudly walk down the main street of Nazareth pushing Jesus in the mountain buggy, taking his first steps, saw Mary and Joseph taking the photograph of Jesus on the first day of school, seen Jesus at the teenage parties, doing his apprenticeship, riding in the builder's van alongside Joseph on the way to another job, why he'd fixed their door frames, put in their floating floors, built their extensions, made their tables. Do you see? There in Nazareth, the human origin of Jesus, his nature, his human nature was un deniable and they'd watched him sweat they'd seen him hungry and thirsty they'd heard him cry out as his thumb got hit by his own hammer or the blade of his saw caught his flesh and caused him to bleed he felt pain he they saw all this this is jesus undeniably human i mean is this your picture of jesus who do you say i am holy human not some 
guy wearing a pristine white robe dancing through a forest with deers running around him and birds flying in the air it's like some transcendent Greek mythological character. This is Jesus Christ, fully human. I asked myself as I was looking at this passage, I wonder how Jesus' own townspeople would have painted Jesus. White, white robe, deers running around him. I think they would have painted him with a pair of blue overalls on, pencil over his ear, ruler in his back pocket and a hammer hanging down his side, a bit like Dean was this morning, climbing up a ladder. Dirty, dusty, involved in daily life. We're going to move on from this truth in a minute, but this is, this is a wonderful and glorious truth of the Christian gospel. Wonderful truth, glorious truth of the Christian gospel, that our God was fully human. Our Saviour lived life in this world and knows what it means to be in this world. He knows what it means to be human. Before I became a Christian, I thought Jesus was some transcendent, kind of floaty type guy floating on the clouds, off the ground, not really relating to me at all. He had no understanding of what it meant to be Simon Jackson in this world. But this truth, this reality is that it changes all that. He knows what it means to be human, fully human. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, for one Christian to be able to say to another Christian, God knows how you feel. God understands where you're at today. In the New Testament, the writers often describe Jesus as our brother, a Christian's brother. Relatable. He understands us. As a successful, bright, popular, upwardly mobile person, Jesus has experienced all the joys and the pressures of success and power. As a hard-working, stressed and busy and submerged person, Jesus has experienced all the pressures that come with that kind of lifestyle. As a grieving person, as a sick person, as a person racked with pain, as a lonely person, Jesus has experienced all that, the whole gamut of the human and the Christian human experience. Jesus has experienced all that because he is fully human. Who do you say? I am, says Jesus. This is probably really the the straightforward truth for tonight or this morning. There are very very few people in our world who would disagree that Jesus was a human being and a historical figure in history. Only the most eccentric historians would deny that. Let's move to point two then, the undeniable divine power of Jesus. Astonishing wisdom and miracles. This is perhaps the challenging point of this morning. Certainly it's the point that the townspeople struggled with, Jesus' own neighbours in his backyard, for they are unable to deny Jesus' divine power. They cannot deny it. And therefore they're unable to get away with the views expressed of my friends, Nicky and Emmanuel on the plane, or the numerous vox pops that I've done where people say, oh, he's just an inspiring human leader, he's just an intriguing human teacher, or he's just a lovely, beautiful human being. Jesus doesn't let them get away with that, but nor can they say that. Did you notice in the passage? They can't say that Jesus is just a lovely, nice leader kind of guy. I'm going to read the verses again, but I want you to see 
that they've seen the evidence of Jesus' life. They've heard about his astonishing miracles. They've seen his divine power at work. They cannot say that he's just a nice guy. Either they recognise the evidence before them and submit to him and worship him wholly and rightly or they reject him outright. There's no middle ground. And do you see how this dovetails so beautifully with the eight parables that have come before? When the man discovers Christ Jesus, he sells everything because he joyfully has met the saviour of the world and he's gained access to the kingdom of heaven. He sees the treasure and he sells everything to make sure that that treasure stays in his grasp. Giving up everything because Christ has given up everything. There's no middle ground, and this is what we see. Have a look at these verses again. Jesus went to his hometown, verse 54, began to teach them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, how did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Aren't they all with us? Where does he get all these things? And they took offence at him. They rejected him. You see the two things that point to Jesus' divine power. Firstly, his extraordinary supernatural wisdom. Where did this man get this wisdom from? For as Jesus teaches, he teaches in a way that no other human being has ever taught before. When he speaks, everyone around recognises that he speaks with all of God's authority. He doesn't just offer more opinions. He doesn't just throw another idea into the mix and say, let's just get the pool happening again and see what comes out. No, he speaks and he cuts through the cacophony of noise in our world like a knife through butter clear, decisive, to the point and to the heart. If you go back in Matthew's Gospel, I would say flop open your Bibles you know, and go back to chapter 7 with me at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're sort of running with pages at the moment. But if we did do that, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, at the end of Jesus' cutting Sermon on the Mount, the people respond by going, we are astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he teaches as one with God's authority not like our scribes. When he speaks, his wisdom cuts through the cacophony of sound. I'm told by those in the know that every day we're bombarded with like 1,500 pieces of advertising material coming at us left, right and centre. Even if you don't have your TV on, you'll still get about 1,200, I think. Every day, the media, someone else's opinion, someone walking down the street with a T-shirt, Adidas or Nike or Ben Sherman or Bovulgari, is that how you say that? Whatever it might be, people are communicating ideas to you, making you want to sort of changing your desires. Every day, advertising, media, opinions, Alan Jones, Tony Jones. The, the noise is there. But when Jesus speaks, he cuts through that noise. Because his wisdom is like no other. His wisdom is God's wisdom. He comes with all the authority of God. And so people are astonished. Are you astonished as Jesus teaches? When you read the Bible, he teaches like no one else can ever teach you because he knows you like no one else knows you. Why? Because he is your creator. 
He knows you like no one else. You might think your wife, your husband or your best friend knows you. Jesus knows you like no one else knows you. And so when he speaks to you, his words cut us to the heart. They break us down, but then we have his word of grace that builds us up and restores us again to make us more like him. When he speaks, the crowds are astonished. I am rebuked by this because so often I read his word and I just kind of take this academic approach to it, but he speaks with wisdom and we are to hear him and obey him and live for him. He gave us everything, we are to give him our everything. Do you obey Christ as Lord? Do you hear his word and respond, yes, Lord, for you gave me everything, I will give you my everything. He speaks with astonishing wisdom. That's, that's one reason why he comes with divine power. The second evidence for his divine power are his miracles. I mean, do you, do you just stand back and see Jesus in action and go, whoa, this guy is incredible. His townspeople can't deny the fact that Jesus does astonishing miracles because he comes with the divine power. Matthew 13 verse 54, where does he get this from? You see, the people who knew Jesus best couldn't deny his wisdom, nor can they deny his supernatural power to do the most amazing things. Jesus' miracles were publicly witnessed, widely reported facts of history. They weren't done in the quiet, round the back, so no one could see. With a rumour mill gradually growing, I saw a man who knew a man who touched a man who saw a man and then we went around and met someone else as a friend of his. No, this is public stuff. This is Jesus doing miracles in the open, displaying the kingdom of God has come to earth and Christ Jesus can secure that kingdom of heaven because he is the one sent of God. Nothing magical, nothing superstitious, nothing secondhand about Jesus. No David Copperfield smoke and mirrors, no magician secrets uncovered. That show freaks me out. None of that in the healings of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 9, there's just this cascade of miracles that Jesus does. Bang, bang, bang. Displaying his awesome divine power that he's come with all God's authority. He's come with all God's divine power to do what no one else can do, that only God can do. Come back with me. If you've got a Bible, chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel is this most poignant moment. Chapter 9, verse 18, where Jesus resurrects a girl who had just died while he was saying this a ruler came knelt before him worshipped him and said my daughter has just died but come and put your hand on her and she will live this is a tremendously poignant moment have you ever been at the death of an infant Jesus got up went with him and so did his disciples. Verse 23. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. Dead girls don't rise, Jesus. They laughed at him. It wasn't like this was just normal run-of-the-mill expectations in around Jesus' time. Oh, look, we saw someone else rise from the dead yesterday. A guy got healed of blindness the other week. This is just, you know, people just do this all the time around here, Jesus. 
We're not talking about a gullible, superstitious mob of people in the first century. This is just human beings seeing a dead girl. And they laughed at Jesus. What did Jesus then do? After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Absolutely. News would spread. A dead girl just got resurrected by the Lord Jesus Christ. News would spread around everywhere. This is, this is incredible. Jesus, fully human, the carpenter's son, comes with all God's divine power and authority and raises dead people to life. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Publicly witnessed event. They saw the girl dead. They then saw her jumping around the next day, alive again. This is the gospel at work, bringing death to life, bringing deadness to aliveness in Christ Jesus by his word, through his touch. Do you see? Who do you say I am? We could go on all day looking at the amazing power of Jesus Christ, that he comes with all God's authority and people are astonished. Friends, I hope you've seen this morning that Jesus is undeniably human. We can relate to God. The great truth of the Christian gospel is our God is not out there somewhere and cannot relate to us. No, he is utterly human. He knows you better than anyone else knows you. Come to him. You can relate to him. God knows us and understands us. But here is the challenge this morning. Here's the kicker. If the humanity of Jesus means we can relate to him as God, then the divinity of Jesus means that we must worship him and submit to him as God. If the reality is that the humanity of Jesus means we can relate to Jesus as God, then the divinity of Jesus means that we must worship and submit to him as God. That's the challenge from this passage. It's the challenge that the townspeople will not face up to. And so they reject him. They push him away. And in so doing, they reject God. They push God away from their lives. But notice the one thing they won't do is put Jesus in that condescending, patronising category of just a nice guy, a wonderful human leader, an, expi- an inspired human teacher. They, they've seen the evidence. He has all of God's divine approval, all of his authority, all of his power. He demands submission and they refuse it and they reject him. Let me ask you as we close Who do you say Jesus is? Not the person next to you. Not the person behind you. Who do you say Jesus is? What you believe about Jesus. Belief fuels worship. Christ Jesus came into the world. He gave up glory. He gave up everything so that we might be restored and made new. He is worthy of our everything, our submission, our obedience our love, our lives. 
I need to repent of this. I need to repent of the times when I love Jesus as my saviour. Interestingly, at the, this point in, John, in Matthew's gospel, we come to the end of Jesus' time in sort of Nazareth and Galilee and around the Sea of Galilee, and this kind of brings that to an end, where we now move. And it's interesting, isn't it? Right at the end of this section, the people who knew Christ best reject him completely. Where does Jesus go next? Jerusalem, where Christ will be nailed to a cross and rejected by the whole world. And he goes there because he loves the world. He loves us. We need to give Jesus not just the due worth because he's our saviour, but we need to live as Him, with him as our Lord. Let me close with this. I've been reading Jonathan Aitken's book recently, uh, Pride and Perjury. Um, Jonathan Aitken was a member of the British government, um, interesting character, and um, he wrote these words before um, he became a Christian. This was describing his relationship with God before he became a Christian. I wonder if this is the case for too many of us. Um, let me hear these words. Uh, Jonathan Aitken writes, At that time, my relationship with God was not unlike my relationship with my bank manager. I spoke to him politely, visited his premises intermittently, occasionally asked him for a small favour or an overdraft to get myself out of difficulty, thanked him condescendingly for his assistance, kept up the appearance of being one of his reasonably reliable customers and maintained superficial contact with him on the grounds that one day, one of these days, he might come in useful. Sometimes I think I think of God and Jesus like that. I'll just keep him over here when things kind of get a little bit bad. I like the fact that he's a human leader. I like the fact that he's an inspired teacher. I like the fact that he's a really nice guy and he helps me to live life well in this world. No, no, he's your Lord and Saviour. And he is worthy of everything. I want to persuade us today, if you know who Jesus is, if you're beginning to see who Jesus is, We cannot go on treating Christ as just an insurance policy, a fashion accessory, or a passing hobby. Friends, Jesus gave up his everything. He's worthy of our everything as both Lord and as Saviour. May God give us the strength, the conviction to make him known, not to just call him a nice guy, not to leave people there, but to pray and take people to the next level to see him as Lord and Saviour. Let me pray as we close.